Thanks for joining the Bookish Club. We are going to talk about Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, who is on a tear. I'm talking a, a Nick Saban level of excellence here with two Pulitzers in the last 10 years. And I remember as we were reading Ann Patchett's latest that I looked up to see why this book did not win the Pulitzer. And then I saw that Nickel Boys had. It's like, huh, all right, I'll bet it's not that good. And man... Colson's just laughing at us once again, and by us, I mean Katie Mullins, who's joining me once again to do this. Thank you so much, Katie. Good to be here. Uh, d- d- stop that. I-, I was hoping that you would dunk on me for being... I don't have a way to do that yet. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So the bust-down form of this is Colson read a piece or pieces by... One of my friends, Ben Montgomery, who had done some extensive reporting on the Dozier School for Boys in Florida and the atrocities performed there, and then decided to write a novel about it. And usually when that kind of thing happens, I'm, I lower my expectations. But with this, it was so subtle to be quite nightmarish is the feeling that I got. And I think, I think you agree with me. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. So upon finishing the book, what was your first feeling? Um, that's really hard to, it's actually, uh, yeah, you called me the moment that I finished the book and it was very difficult to even put together my feelings because I was left really disarmed and really raw in a lot of ways that a book that is written with this kind of almost like this, this perfect stillness usually doesn't create. So I, it took me a little while to even begin to process how I felt because honestly I put it down and I was just like, I like, I'm not sure how to move forward for a a few minutes here. I need like, I needed to sit in the same stillness, the stillness that this book created to process it. Um, I think, I mean, there's, (laughs) this is where I get really stuck, right? It's really hard to even conceive of like, obviously there's the, the kind of gut visceral reactions of horror of what the book contains and, um, and shock and disgust and all of the things that you would expect with a book that deals with the content that this deals with. However, I wouldn't say that that was the forefront of my emotions because of the way that Colson Whitehead has structured this book. It it didn't come across right away as like, oh, I'm horrified and I read this, this gruesome tale. It, it was a very different sensation of just being kind of walloped by his work. Yeah, well... I kind of came away thinking, yeah, okay. Like that, like, I, I uh, it's really difficult for me to say that this sucks any more than it sucks because it's really uh, a magnificent work. It's, it, I mean, it's a genius at play is the way that I think about it. <laughs> but being black, being black in America, I'm... The turns are good. They're also wild, predictable, predictable, and that was what I was going. Oh, okay, like when, when toward the end we find out some things about the the main character, we find out things about their narrator, and we learn more or less how the how the book moves and why it moves. And in that way, I'm, I thought somebody's been reading a lot of Toni Morrison, which is cool, right? True. Uh, right. On the other hand, I'm going, somebody's been reading a lot of Toni Morrison, which is not cool. Like, I was, I was <laughs> so conflicted about 
how this book was put together rather than the subject matter itself. And I think that says more about me than it does the book. Interesting, because I had a very opposite reaction in that I originally, I've moved kind of the other way. Like at first I was conflicted and I was like really struggling to decide if I actually felt like this book achieved what it set out to. And it's only been kind of as I've been sitting with it, or I should say as it refuses to leave me, mm. that I've really... I've been like, oh, I, like I, I keep revisiting moments or, or turns in this novel that even if I suspected that they might be coming, which one I did, one I did not, um, it's still, it still is haunting in a way. I mean, one of the things, so if I can transition slightly, one of the things that you and I talked about uh, and, you know, continue to explore with um, his writing is the tremendous restraint that he shows in the way that he portrays the horrors of this. So when he spoke about this book, uh, Magic City Books in Tulsa, virtually, uh, he said that he basically said that there are a lot of things that in the situation of the um, Dozier House in Florida that were kind of built for him. Like the fact that the boys call the room where they are beaten the White House, no change is needed there, right? That is, that already holds kind of a, a literary significance. And so he can leverage that in this novel and keep that very true to the real life experiences of these boys and not, um, not have to kind of do anything with that. But there was another thing that was present in the Dozier house, which was like this one armed, uh, the guy who runs it, who's this one armed masochist, you know, just like rage filled monstrous person. And I think it would be very tempting as a writer to tap into that, right? And be like, oh, this character is like the perfect villain, villain, because not only is he constructed to be the perfect villain, but he's a real man that really existed. And, you know, Colson Whitehead paused on that and said, well, actually, this is one of those moments that in fiction, this, this wouldn't bowl, like you, you can't do that. You can't make this person, this larger than life, one-armed sadist and have that sit and have that land with the reader. And so he actually did a lot of pulling back of those kind of extremes to make it not for the sake of making it palatable, but for the sake of making it in a lot of ways, almost more haunting. Cause you read this and you realize that this is, this is only a slice of what actually happened there. And that to me, that is part of the reason this book has not let me go is it's like, how much did I not see on these pages because he didn't show us, but you just, you know, it's there. It's an interesting observation to make that a writer shows restraint in this way uh, because, as you said, like there's every want and reason to try to take that into the deep end and turn it into something else entirely, which is more caricature than, let's say, portrait, right? Now, what I thought was interesting is having this conversation about how folks are going to read it because if you're already on team institutional racism sucks and team black lives matter you already read this with enough background to understand mm -hmm. what he is not telling you right mm -hmm. to try to dig at it if you did not you don't actually read this book as much of anything at all and i thought that right. that was interesting as i was having a conversation with a newspaper publisher yesterday who's black and we were talking about the Tulsa Race Massacre, and we were talking about how folks are interpreting Greenwood as they come through and take a look and, you know, whatnot. And he was saying, if white folks walk out of there feeling guilty, that's not going to be okay. If black folks walk out of there feeling angry, that's not going to be okay. 
the goal for him was to see Tulsa as something else entirely, which is to say, no, this is this place proves that white supremacy is a lie. And there's a very subtle positive tone to that, but it's only one that you get to based on how you were raised, who raised you, and what significant events in your life impact you. So for me, I would have leaned more into the grotesque parts of this story because I feel that the person that I want to know these things is not going to get there unless I Mm -hmm. show them who they are in this black mirror, right? And I show them what this was. It's different to say, hey, kids couldn't go to the same schools together or couldn't drink out of the same water fountain than it is to say, we had to sign lynch law. We had to actually pass federal law that said you could not hang black men in extrajudicial hangings, right? We had to do that in such a way that the first time the Senate voted against it. And then the second time the Senate voted against it. And then by the third time, finally, we'll get them to shut up if we do this. And it's 1931. And yet... If we have that conversation without Emmett Till, if we have that conversation without Claude Neal, right? If we have that conversation without Roy Belton, I don't think that there's a group of people that are going to get it in large part because, at least in Tulsa, we've shown that people will try to forget that it happened. And yet what Colston is dependent upon is smart people reading his novel. Right. And I don't really have all the faith in the world that smart people are going to read it. And even the smart people that do, that they're going to have the necessary historical perspective and background to really understand what's at play here. It's interesting because I, I think I, I both, so I both agree and disagree, um, which is I know not really taking a stance on that at all. But I think that there are, I think that even if you are able to gloss over parts of this. Even if you are someone that is reading this and you have no context and you don't know that these reform schools used to exist, not just in Florida, but many, many, many other places in the country, none of which we talk about in our history books. And you don't know that there is layers upon layers upon layers of history within this novel that require you to do some work, even if you know none of that. I think that there are some moments in this book that he constructs very, very carefully. Um, I'm thinking specifically about like the you know, about like the, the guard Earl, right? That, um, that one, that one kid is just like, you have, we have to get him. We have to get him. We have to get him. We, and he never says why. And he could lean really heavily into that, right? He'd be like, well, he did this to me. And, and you could you put brutal facts on the page and you would read it and you'd be horrified. But the fact that he holds those things back, even if you read this book with the rosiest eyes and you think that, you know, it's like America has been the utopia that it might have been for you, for every other person in this country, there are things in this book that I think snag people. And I think that 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 in itself is a really masterful feat because it doesn't, there's nothing in here where I ever at any point in time was like, this is really so intense. Like I need a break or I need to close the book or I just need to like, like it doesn't ever tip a point where you start to get like emotionally reactive in a, in a very visceral sense. It always stays on this level of just like, low-lying constant dread and that it's it's interesting it's almost I almost feel like it parallels skilled 
horror directors like Stanley Kubrick, right? Where it's like, it's not the, I mean, he obviously he goes for the blood and gore at the end, but his whole thing was like, no, it's just the anticipation. It's just those moments where you're waiting and you're waiting and you know the world's about to fall apart, but you don't know how or when it's coming at you. I feel like that was one of the things in a, in a much less uh, drastic sense, I suppose, that he does in this novel, which is you're always waiting and it doesn't ever quite drop in the way that you think he'd want to, but that almost leaves, makes it more powerful than it would be without that. Colson Whitehead is the person that I gleaned the wisdom from in college, save the good shit till the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which feels very simple and yet is sincerely still one of the hardest things to do when trying to craft and, and build a story. Right. Because I believe mm-hmm. that the scaffolding is more important than what the structure turns out to be. Does it hold up? Right. Will it hold up upon revision? Will it hold up if somebody else looks at it like it, it can't be a Frank Lloyd Wright house? It, no, nothing really can. Right. And I would contend that. Kubrick at the end would go for blood and gore precisely because his producers were like, what am I paying for? If we're, if we're not, right. gonna, if we're not going to do this, what, what am I paying for? Right. Cause like apocalypse now is exact, is exactly that all mm-hmm. anticipation through the end. And you have to, you have to really, really buy into storytelling for this to land on you and to do this with something that has horror inherent in it, racism, is always going to be difficult, especially knowing that race is America's third rail, right? Uh, no, nobody likes to talk about it except the people who like talking about it. And that's how this book reads to me, right? I can't actually give this book to many other people because A, I don't trust them to read it, or B, they'll read it and say I don't get it. There'll be a hang-up on why wasn't there uh, in this pivotal scene a better lawyer could have done whatever? And I've been like, okay, we can't talk anymore. Got it. Right. You know, and that's that. I think that's my own anger in a lot of ways in, in how I interpret some of this stuff. But to your point of how the thing gets done being one of the most important achievements that it makes, I can't see a better way to tell the story. Right. Like that's that's what's so jaw dropping to me is I look at the story, I reverse engineer it. I try to see what I know about the events. I haggle with him in my head about whether or not he should go over the top here or he should actually put in more of what actually occurred here. And I say, no, not in the way that he built this book and the way that he built this book. You are very much in it by page 20. And you're in the thick of it by page 50. And then by that point, it ain't going to let you go. And that, that is a superpower. That I was going, all right, what do you do here? What, what the hell did he do here? So I would, I would ask you to answer that question for me. What did he do to draw us in in such a way that we, we read this book as quickly as we did? Because that's the thing I was telling, I told you and I told a, a friend, Ron, it's, it, you're going to read it quickly, not because it's short, but because you're going to read it quickly. Mm-hmm. So what do you think he did? So um, it's hard because I similarly write like after as a writer, I, I read books and I devour them because I enjoy them. And then I have to go back and look at the mechanics of it because 
you know, I finished this book and it was, it was first like, oh my goodness. And then it was, I just sit a little while and then it was like, okay, how, you know, how on the God's green earth did he manage? Um, and I think that there are, I think that it's in the moments that he chooses to restrain that allow that to happen. Right. Cause like, like, okay. So to your point about the person who says, well, if they had just gotten a better lawyer, they could, I would argue that he doesn't allow, I mean, obviously there will be people always who, who decide to fixate on those things because they, because of the way that they have decided to approach the world and the framework in which they want the world to exist. But there are things that he does to circumvent those people step by step by step. So for example, when it comes to um, the first time that our main character is beaten after an incident that is absolutely not his fault. And he, uh, you know, it's like, so not only do we, are we faced with this injustice that, you know, all, all these boys are treated the same and that there's no way that he could have possibly escaped this because the fault is, is not even a, a concept, you know, he could have done everything perfectly and still ended up in this situation. So it's like already you can't be like, Oh, if he had just, because he couldn't just, because it doesn't matter. And he juxtaposes Elwood's innocence against these people, kids who have been bullying other kids. And it's like, listen, they, you know, it's awful no matter what their crime is. But then on top of that, when we get into that actual scene, which is in itself really horrifying, the, the way that the room is described and the way that the, the systematic way that these boys are tortured is described is horrendous. But he doesn't let you stop on like on anything that you could use to pass this off as acceptable. He doesn't ever tell you how many times our narrator was lashed. He doesn't ever tell you the extent of his injuries, except that you know that they are so grave that our narrator is going to have to relearn how to walk. He doesn't ever go into the detail of, of what things look like or how, how it impacts him down the road. There is no point at which you can say, oh, well, it was only X bad, which is something that I feel like a lot of people who try to circumnavigate the extensive and horrific extent of racism in this country, both past and present, they try to explain away, right? Like if this is, it only was this, or if it had just gone this way, or if we could have just done, you know, as opposed to confronting as a whole. And he doesn't let you, you, you never know the number of times that Elba was actually tortured. You never know the extent of his injury. There's no way that you can say, okay, I can fit it into this box of knowing that it was this bad, but also only this bad. He just lets you sit with the uncertainty of, we don't know exactly what happened. And so run with it as far as you want, but I'm going to hold back as the writer and not tell you. I think he does it again with our, our kid who keeps getting tossed back and forth over the fence, right? Because he's Mexican. And so some of the people that work there think that he belongs with the white kids. And some of the kids, people that work there think he belongs with the black kids and they, they continuously slosh him back and forth. And then he says, no, we have to get this one guard. And he does it in a way that, again, we don't ever know the extent of the guard's injuries. We don't actually know how he pulled it off that he takes this you know, guard. I keep calling them guards because this is a prison. Um, they are not framed that way by the people who work there. But we never know exactly what he did or what happened to him or how he did it. And so there is no way for the denier to read this book and say, well, that would be acceptable if, or I can pass this off because like, he just leaves it to your imagination. And I think that that forces you in as the reader to grapple with the fact that there is no way you can explain this away, especially if you are someone who continues to deny the ever present horrors of racism, again, past and present in this country. 
you, you can't quantify this. There is no box you can put this in to say, well, at the time period, this happened and it's only this, but like, nope, your imagination, you take it wherever you think it went. I will not let you off the hook easy enough to say, okay, I know what this was and nothing more and nothing less. You don't know what it was and it might be a lot more than you possibly could imagine. That's what I think he's doing skillfully here. Um, I think it's more complicated than that. I think that the, the timeline in which he structures this book, especially with the flashing forward and then going back and reframing that for us in terms of who it is that's actually telling our story um, I think all of that plays in as well. But at the end of the day, I think it's those little moments of refusing to tell us the extent of what's happening that really forces the reader to in no way contain this into a box of, okay, I know what that is. You don't know what it is. And that's what makes it so horrifying. First, expertly done. Second, what what else was there about this novel that you would want people to know? Me personally? Yeah, you personally. I mean, I think that one of the, the powers, but also the pitfalls of fiction is how closely novels like this parallel reality. Mm. I think that both the strength and the weakness of it, the strength, right, is that he is allowed to take these characters and fictionalize them to utilize plot points the way he wants to, to tell the story that needs to be told. And if he were trying to stay too, too close to the truth or trying to delve too far into a nonfiction individual story, I think that there are elements of that that could be lost because you can't manipulate the truth in nonfiction quite the same way as you can in fiction. That being said, I worry that someone might read this book and hear the word fiction and discount the fact that this is actually a book that has taken a step out of the nonfiction world, not to so not to, to make things worse or more drastic, but to actually kind of soften them and make them more palatable because the things that actually were happening in the real world are so horrendous that, again, like our, I'm going to keep harking back to our, our one-armed one sadist that ran this place. You know, that's, that is textbook villain. You can't do that in fiction. But I would hope that readers would understand with this book that there, he is not... He is not softening things here at all. This is, it, it is this. It is worse than this. This is not a story about one school. This is a story about many, many, many schools that he just happened to, you know, choose one as a vehicle to tell the story of, of countless numbers of people across all time. You know, it's, this book is fiction because it is telling multiple nonfiction stories at the same time, not because it is inaccurate. You remind me of John Hersey's essay on this subject uh, called The Legend on the License, and I have it in front of me because I've been really asking myself this question about nonfiction versus fiction and trying to find a way to write nonfiction the way that you know fiction reads. And sometimes that's a noble pursuit, sometimes it's not, sometimes it doesn't work for the story that you're trying to tell but it is worth investigating, for which Tom Wolfe would say, I don't want to write fiction because the truth is, one, much stranger, and two, is much cooler because it's unpredictable and it happened. That's the only way you're going to be able to convince somebody that this is worthwhile, whereas Hersey, who I need to add is probably one of the greatest journalists that we all know about, right? Narrative nonfiction comes out of him and his really great piece called Hiroshima 
the only time that the New Yorker killed the magazine to publish a story, a single story. And he would say, uh, and I'm quoting here, in fiction that is fiction, no holds need be barred. Novelists may introduce or disguise real people in real events as they choose. Uh, Tolstoy disguised all but the generals. Dreiser's An American Tragedy was suggested by an actual crime, but he did not feel the need to call his creation a, quote, true life novel, unquote, right? And he goes on to give all these examples with this taint then. Well, alas, yes, some questions remain, enough to add up. That I thought was most interesting to point out because, you know, like, Wolf is accused of aping fiction to make journalism, to which I'm going, yeah, man, whatever device you got to use to tell the story, one, and two, it's more entertaining. Like, the reason that we use fiction devices is because we like plot, we like cliffhangers, we like characters, we like dialogue. Nonfiction doesn't always lend itself to that. You have to work at it, right? You have to be very, very clear about what you're doing. And with, with Colson's novel, not unlike the Underground Railroad, you can achieve that in the inverse. And that's why I thought this was what makes him so cool and so good. He's just understated by nature. Like I read uh, Colossus of New York here not too long ago as, as I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. And it's, it reads very much the same way as Nickel Boys, right? But it's really him just talking about the place that he grew up. And there's just little turns of phrase here. But all these turns of phrase lead you to a deeper meaning. And by deeper meaning, I mean, if you know, you know. And if you don't, you probably just keep going, right? He would say, like, the idea of an alarm clock being God. Why? Because you can pray to it every day snooze button brings you some level of joy you know uh, i mean it was yeah right and he, he's able to unravel these ideas in a way that makes complete sense to you and i and knowing that he's able to do that in fiction is wild because i feel like if i tried to write fiction that way or anybody i know tried to write fiction that way we look at it and be like there's there's not a whole lot here in in which case we have conversations about commercial fiction versus literary fiction and so forth so on but like to, to read Lauren Groff is not to lead, is not to read Colson Whitehead, right? And that's mm -hmm. that is interesting because I feel like Groff would come at this with a little bit more flame because that's just kind of who she is, right? She yes. <laughs> and, and how would we treat that, right? How would we treat such an understated novel? Because if Colson was not a dude, would we call him women's fiction? Interesting. Like that's seriously, a really good question. I mean, because, like, he's allowed this license, I think, precisely because he has a penis. Like, I, I, I genuinely believe that. We would expect something else a little bit more virile from him or from a woman, I should say, right? Because conceit here of late, I think it's prescient. None of the conversations about uh, Kamala Harris are good conversations to have. None of the ones that we're having right now, you know? Yep. Um, and yet... I'm waiting on a woman being elected president or vice president, not because she's most like a man, but because she is most like herself and what that means to be acknowledged by men, right? Because American culture is paternalistic in, in almost every way, even as we try to fight it. So leading back to this novel, though, like that was a question I had it was like, why aren't you coming at this a little bit tougher and harder? Because even if you're from 
north of the Mason-Dixon line. You're a black man. You get it. You know. Why are you taking it easy on these white folks? To which his answer would be, or probably be something along the lines of what he told Ben Montgomery, which is, eh, if they know, they know. <laughs> like, I was, yeah. that was it. If they know, they know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not necessarily on me to tell them what they don't know, but perhaps to give them a lens to see it through in which they could see it every day because that's what that novel is to me. I see this every day. It's and just, that's fairly... Oh, go ahead. No, please, go ahead. I just That's fairly, you know, a lot Toni Morrison as well. You know, she said, I don't, I don't write for white people. I write for black people. And if white people pick up my books, I'm not doing the work for them. You just read it and you take of it what you will. And that's, that's it. That's the whole thing. Um, but she, you know, then she also shows a different sort of restraint that leans in a lot heavier in certain areas and holds back in a lot of areas that Colson Whitehead chooses to go full throttle, which is a, you know, another route we could go down. I do want to just for one second, jump back though to the, uh, the idea of, you know, fiction and making meaning out of plot and all of that, because I think that one of the things that this book releases Colson Whitehead from is that if this were narrative nonfiction, I don't envy you who write it because there is an expectation to take the messy, ugly, truth of everything and make it make meaning out of out of real life and i think that part of the way that he utilizes fiction in this sense is almost to make meaning out of the fact that there is not meaning he because it is fiction he is not forced to draw some sort of conclusion or present some sort of of ending truth he simply is able to just let his fictional story tell what it needs to tell and exist in the space that he wants it to exist without the pressure of this is all true. And so what did it mean? Cause in this book, I would argue that the fact that it is entirely meaningless, all of the things that our character our protagonist goes through are actually entirely meaningless and senseless and needless is the root of what this book is trying to say at the beginning is, is look at, you know, look at the, what this is and how can you possibly expect that this sort of grand suffering that we have put these generations upon generations of people of color through is anything more than just horrendous. Like that there, there is any sort of meaning in any of the atrocities that we have committed. There is not, they are simply atrocities. Uh, Also, I really enjoy your point about Colson. If he were a woman and how, how that would change the dynamic of the, the narrative that he either is allowed to present or can present. Um, I think that that's a really an interesting dialogue to open up. I do also, though, want to toss the question you asked me back at you, which is that out of this book, what is it that you would hope that readers take or what is it that you would hope that readers would um, would kind of be left with when they finish this novel? Ain't shit changed. Like, that's, that's it. Ain't shit changed. You know, like, <laughs> I'm thinking about our narrator, rather than our protagonist. And I'm thinking about how this ends for him. And I thought about myself, right? And I'm, I'm going, oh, I, I still do that. I still have to do that. I've still had those conversations, like when they're at dinner, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, the, you, you have this, this understanding with the black person in the room and this understanding that the joke is going over this white person's head, right? Like, why? Because the conversation doesn't actually involve them and it's not because it can't it's like north and south tulsa there i tell people this all the time now there's there's two americas in every city there's two parts of the city at, at a minimum right in tulsa 
you can make an argument that there are four, and they're all separated by cardinal directions. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it, ain't shit changed because white folks don't want it to change. You know, like that's that's what's it. I mean, I'm, I I brought up lynching earlier in this conversation, and I can point to Red Summer in 1919, right? And I can point to all of these extrajudicial lynchings that happened during Separate but Equal. And people be like, yeah, but that was then. Yo, fool, George Floyd was May 26th. All right? Mm-hmm. Like, Ahmad, Ahmad was hunted. We still don't have the dudes that killed Breonna Taylor in cuffs. Like, that's still a thing that hasn't happened in August. Like, ain't shit changed. Any little thing. Your word versus my word. That's what's bothering me, is that this begins with white folks getting the benefit of the doubt and every black person is guilty. Tell me what about that has changed. You know, like that's that's the part of this that I get very upset about in the way that we read these things because, oh, yeah, that, that happened before I was born. I wasn't a part of that. Is the same person that says, well, I didn't have slaves. Now you sound like you would have liked to have them. What right. do I do with that? If that's your retort, oh, so you feel like you missed out on the boat on that one, huh? Okay, cool. Let me kneecap you verbally. You know, it's like my family fought for the Confederacy. Food, the same family that would have had me in shackles and change. Okay, cool. We're done here. And I, again, I get real easy. It's real easy to get me to go angry, right? And yet, in me being angry, I am an angry black man. You know, just like we have angry black women. And this conversation, even in popular culture, like Viola Davis bought the plantation she was born on for her birthday. Shout out her, right? I'm thinking, landowner, hello, yay. That, 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 that's, that's my homer. That's, that's my homie right over there. She, she bought, she bought land, which is what, you know, the Freedmen Bureau was supposed to make sure that we all had. And that white folks quite literally denied and put in, in law. And what does that conversation turn into? She just bitter. Wait a second. Can you afford to buy a plantation? Can we start with that? If you could afford to buy this big swath of land, would you have bought it? Because I would have bought it. I don't, I don't give a damn who owned it. <laughs> I own it now, right? You know, it's like, why, do, why does that happen? And yet, to look at Viola Davis is to see one of the most accomplished human beings on the face of the earth. And yet, to look at your average white dude walking in to get a loan, like, maybe, let me put sports in this for just a second. There's a 30 for 30 documentary about a white dude who walked into a bank looking for a loan to buy the New York Islanders. And they gave him one. They gave him enough money to buy the New York Islanders without much collateral at all. And he got away with that con. Now, let me walk into any bank and say, yo, check it. I'm here to buy the Dallas Stars. Excuse me, uh, Dallas PD. We got a live one here. Uh, five foot five, about 130 pounds. He's, he's got a high voice, but he's talking really loud. He's making the guest uncomfortable. What do you mean is he big? I don't know. Like, he looks big. I don't know, 130 pounds, whatever. Can you please come get him? Thank you. Like, it's just, that's the part of this that I wanted to get across. It's like, you read this, and you should read it with a contemporary air. You should read it, like, backdropped against today. In the same way that I, I could say, you can read this backdropped against the 15th century, right? And you'll see, okay, well, this doesn't really factor in in all that many ways. And then you look at race, 
And you say, oh, yeah, 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 it does. Yeah. Feudal system. Caste system. Got it. Cool. So do we want to change that? Well, we keep saying we do. Like, I keep reading these polls about, you know, 70% of white folks say that they believe in Black Lives Matter. And 60% of white folks say that, yeah, there's something wrong with the criminal justice system as it denotes to, you know, being racist toward black people. Okay. How many of y'all going to do something? I mean... I didn't know you wanted me to do something. Like, I agree with you that something's wrong, but like, I'm, I didn't, why, why you need me to do something? And then I want to punch people, right? Because like, that's the conversation around gender issues for me too. It's, yo, hey man, uh, just make an edict. You just, you're just hiring women, right? And you're just hiring women in powerful positions that can hold you accountable, okay? And then tell everybody that. Tell everybody you're, you're, you're just going to be discriminatory against men for these hires. See how that goes. You won't do it. Why? Because I don't want to be put on blast. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know you're wrong. And that, that's, that's another level of hypocrisy on display. So many people that know that they're wrong in this novel that choose to do nothing. And I don't know who to throw a rock at for that. Because I know a lot of people that fit that category. You choose to do nothing. So I, right. I like I said, I, I just like with the George Floyd killing, like Laurel tells me that this is going on. And my first reaction is, okay, right? Because I'm, I'm conditioned to know that it's going to happen. And then she says, you know, people are, are protesting in the street and they're, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter. And I said, we did this literally four years ago. Mm-hmm. Who, who cares we did this six years ago who cares you know what's this gonna actually lead to right except getting corporations to co-sign black lives matter in such a craven way like i never wanted to yell at jeff bezos more than when i saw this assortment of black lives matter film on my prime television i'm going i hate y'all I hate y'all. And the same people like, you know what? Juneteenth should be a, a, a federal holiday. You didn't even know Juneteenth existed until what? What are you talking about? Well, I'm trying to do better. Are you? If you're trying to do better, go hand some jobs out. You know, like that's the part like I, in sports. There's a there's a lens on how many black people and women that are, are working in sports that like didn't play. Right. Aren't an athlete or whatever. And crickets. Right. And then it's like, we're going to start hiring black people. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm on board with that. Now go find them. And they're like, well, we, we can't. Why? Because there aren't that many that are qualified. And why is that, you think? Is it because you didn't train nobody? OK, get out of my face. And, you know, that's that's where I start with this. It's like there's lots of kids out there that can't wait to learn what you got to teach them. And I feel that way about reading these, right? When we're um, learning about these kids and how they get through. Like, I forget dude's name, but poor dude looking over the rope talking about, I thought you meant for me to go down, you know, later. Yeah. You know, and I was like, man, how, fight scene, you, yeah. you can't just, that poor child. Because I'm going, this is the only thing he's good at. And you're telling him not only to not be good at this, but you're threatening his life if he chooses to be good at this. I wanted him to be defiant. Like that was, and I think that was, that's a, sh there's another bit of uh, a paintbrush genius on Whitehead's part. 
somebody felt like they were in, they were terrified for that young man the whole time. I am actively rooting for him to be defiant, and I think he's defiant. And then I find out, no, nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. He's as afraid as he should be. And then I I just you know that that's me though. And I guess with me ranting and raving about this, especially knowing what I've been had what I've done the last three weeks as far as reading and literature. Am I off here, Katie, or am I just doing the thing I normally do? You are in no way even a little bit off. Um, no, I mean, you are, you're completely correct across the board. I think that, for me, one of the most sinister scenes in this book that also I think is one of the most important is the one where the kids are taken by... Um, oh, I can't remember his name. The guy who... The van driver, right? And they're taken out and they're allowed to go and paint this gazebo for this white woman and she brings them lemonade and it's like that to me was kind of the culmination of of the horror of this book was like here we are and we're looking at this woman who is is doing these boys what on the surface looks like this this sweet thing right you're working on this thing i'm going to bring you lemonade and you bring all of the gravity of all of the weight of all of the symbolism everything that that moment means in the context of america into it and it is the ugliest scene in this entire book and i think that that is a moment that our author does a fantastic job of, of once again, you know, really bringing it home. It's like we see a lot of portrayals in our literature and in our movies and in our film of these people who are just outlandishly racist. And so it's easy for white people to look at these, these caricatures of racist people and say, well, I am not like that. And therefore, I am not a participant or I am not part of this or you know or as you said right I wasn't alive at the time and my you know I never personally like and all of those those dismissals and then you got this moment in the book where there is a person who is directly interacting with these kids who is no way affiliated with the school and she actually does nothing and that there is like that to me is the moment of this country that I think every white person needs to read if you if you are doing anything less than your absolute damnedest you are absolutely complicit and you are still complicit even if you are doing your damnedest it's just you know we're like it's like try anyway it's i just i think that that for me was the moment when i read that that i was like this i need every white person i know to read this scene because this is what racism looks like on a lot of levels that people don't want to talk about we'll talk about the horrors of i mean obviously every every horrible incident of the recent past that you've brought up is completely accurate and valid and you have these all these white 60 percent of white people saying that they they support black lives matter 70 percent saying they support black lives matter but then they deflect with this that i didn't and i wasn't and i was not alive and it wasn't me and like no no everybody needs to understand that that is not how this looks you do not have to be the racist cop firing the gun to be part of this system you do not have to be the the caricature one-armed masochistic i'm gonna harm these kids like it also looks like you being the white lady with the lemonade while these (laughs) black children are painting your gazebo bringing out cold drinks to them that is what it is that in itself that that's it you are racist and i think that that is the reckoning that speaking as a white woman in this country it is, it is not a reckoning that white people have had yet. And it is the reckoning that we absolutely need to, that for some reason, 
Um, I mean, it's not for some reason. I could list all the reasons. We'd be here another four hours. But it's it's really that's the the thing that needs to change is this this I'm not the caricature racist and therefore you know I can support and I can sit back and I can walk in the protests and I can show up to the things and I've done enough. No, you haven't. It is not good enough to say that you are not as bad as other people. You have to be more than that. It's just so anyway. All that to say that that I, I think I brought this up when we first spoke about this book, too, like that for me was the scene that I will never be able to let go of, because that for me is is how this book directly translates to the the mass audience of modern day America. We can look at the horrible things. We can point our fingers. We can go on and on about the fact that it has been <laughs> nearly half a year and the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor have not been arrested and there has been absolutely no justice and that is true and horrific and horrendous, and we should all be outraged. And yet, I would argue that we should also be absolutely outraged at the white women who are out here bringing lemonade to the black kids that are painting her gazebo. That is absolutely racism in America at its finest. And it is working in a way that allows it to exist for centuries. That is where my... Again, speaking from my own race and class and gender in this society, that is where I direct my anger to, is looking at that woman being like, I understand that you think you're off the hook because of some misguided idea that you're bringing lemonade means that you are, and you're not being complicit in the ownership of slavery personally, means that you are allowed to, I don't know, look the other way. That is where we as a country are failing across the board. So that white lady gets your bad character award, right? Meaning the the character you hate the most in this novel. No, I wouldn't okay. say that. Okay, so I so who, don't think it's that. Who is that character? All. Ooh, I don't know. Okay, because <laughs> um, I will say I don't think that it's the character I hate the most in any capacity, right? I think that there are there are sliding scales of of horror and all, but I think that she is the one that people who claim that they have done the work need to read because it is easy to point your finger at our one-armed or in this case in our book two-armed sadist and say you are racist and awful but if you can't also point that same finger at that white woman you have not gotten where you need to be hmm okay okay uh i will answer this question as to the character that i quite honestly can't stand and hate the most and it is the attorney that up and left town in the, after taking our main characters, our protagonist's grandmother's money. Mm-hmm. And doing what I assume most attorneys do, which is promise you that they're going to see the case through. Right? And you don't hear from that man ever again. He just ups and goes to Atlanta and takes her money with him. And that person, that's, that is the special place in hell. Right? That's the person I can't stand. And I understand everybody's going to have a take on that as to what's going on in that person's life. And I'm going, eh, you're a coward. Cowards don't have anything to say, right? Cowards just up and leave. You're a coward. I can't stand cowards. It, it's cowards and hypocrites. Those are the two people I, I, can't, I can't summon any sympathy or empathy for. Because I'm not a coward. And when I'm hypocritical, cop to it, we're going to stop that. Right, right away. 
because they're, they're, there's there's no you have an opportunity here to be good. You know, like I'm I'm do, I'm dealing with this right now in my well my main hustle, which is college football, right? And I've been saying that you know, we shouldn't play, we shouldn't play football, right? It's gonna suck, like. Madison, Wisconsin, where they have decided that they're not going to play football as Wisconsin's football team, the Badgers, are a part of the Big Ten. They're losing out on $16 million to the economy for each home game, and they're only six each year, right? The same thing is true of Columbus, Ohio, right, where you're probably going to see some businesses that don't come back from this, and you're going to see even more that never plan for this kind of halt to their business model. And I've been very clear about that sucks. You know what sucks more? Dead people. Sick people. Overwhelmed hospitals. General just decay of what everything you think you know that you take for granted. Maybe like, I don't know, the postal service. And yet, what I'm doing is, go, is yeah, I'm very much in the middle of this. I make my living talking about college football. You know what, not want football? It's like, okay, first of all, I'm much more creative as to how I think we can get to football when it's safe. I also wanted everybody to stay at home and wear a friggin' mask, and y'all don't want to do that. So since y'all can't have nice things, you don't get to have nice things. Like I've said, the, the argument for sports is that sports is a reward for a functioning society. Guess what we don't have? <laughs> you know? And, and that's, that's racism, right? Because like every time we point out what racism is, and this is true in college football where 17 out of 18 governors that have decided we're not allowing you to play fall sports are Democratic. And 25 of the 32 that have decided to play fall sports are Republican. Half those people are in election years, right? To say, yo, if you make a decision that puts the humanity of folks before making money on them, guess what you end up doing? Making money. And if that's what drives you, I don't know why you would not have a more humanitarian outlook on your business. Because even, <laughs> even like with the green energy stuff, right? People are going, we're investing more in clean. Yeah, because that's making money. Like there's a group of people that are willing to pay more of their money if they know that it's going to go toward good and humanitarian issues. Like, I don't know, climate change. You know, it's just, I, I don't understand this idea of wrapping your arms around this little bit that you have when all you have to do is give just a little bit of it away so you can quintuple what you have, if that's what drives right. you, you know? And I don't choose to believe that everybody is driven by money, but I also don't believe that people by and large have good intentions because they keep proving, not, proving me wrong on that front, right? Or proving me right on that front, I should say. So, and that's... Well, also I mean, if that's the framework that we're working in, then you would assume that that logic would follow through, right? Like if it, you, you have demonstrated to me you're motivated by money. So how about we build a structure in which you can make more by giving up a little bit? Like that, it should follow. <laughs> you would think it would. Man. I, uh... I do have to say, though, I agree with you on, on most hated characters. I think, I mean, it's very hard to, to choose, right? Because this book is entirely um, horrendous characters. You know, it's, it, there is, because we don't see them a lot, because they, because most of the characters in this book are kind of external forces, they rarely appear on the pages. And when we, when they do, we see the impact of their actions rather than the person who is perpetrating them, which I think is, 
a tremendously strategic uh, move on Colson Whitehead's part. Um, the lawyer falls into that. We never see him on the pages. We have to trust and hold on to this hope that he is working behind the scenes as he claims to. And then we are inevitably faced with the the realization that, in fact, he is not at all, um, which is both extremely predictable and extremely horrific all at the same. You know, it, it doesn't the predictability of it does not release it from the horror that it is intended to evoke. Um, but it is, he, he is a really loathsome character. I don't think that there is anything that you could say or do that would justify the actions that he takes. They are predictably awful and they are, I mean, that is, that is it, you know, it's, that's kind of the end of it. He's one of the few characters on this page that most of these characters, we trust that their intentions are exactly what they are, which is horrific. He is not one that we are expected to trust that his intentions are terrible. And even though you can anticipate that they are, it does not that does not then soften it when we find out that in fact he has fallen to exactly what we expected of him. I think I think that makes him exceptionally loathsome um, in terms of the magnitude of the damage that he does. Yeah, man. Uh, is there another part of this novel that you want to talk about? Um, so yes and no. Yes. In the sense that I do want to talk about the twist that is turned at the very end of this book. Um, it just depends on how deep into spoilers we are planning on going. Uh, so spoilers now go ahead. Cool. Okay. Pause if you don't want to hear them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so at the end of this novel, um, about halfway through we are, we are put into a flash forward. And so we see our, uh, protagonist Elwood talking or basically like, giving us a sense of where he where he has gone after his time at uh, the Nickel School. And so we see him um, up north of the Mason-Dixon line creating a successful moving company, which he actually has named after a ranking that was present in his school. Um, and we assume up until almost the end of this book that it is, in fact, Elwood. And so there's kind of this lingering nausea that that creates of where is Turner you know where what happened to Turner and you you know obviously what is going to happen to him but you don't know how and you don't know the mechanism by which it will happen and so that creates that kind of again nauseating suspense that this book does so beautifully uh however I I so I both saw this coming and not saw this coming because I, I had a feeling that there was going to be something where it turned out that Elwood actually did not make it out of this school. I did not know how he was going to do that. And with the flash forward, I also had this kind of nauseating, uh-oh, is he, is he about to pull the move that I think he's about to pull, especially when he keeps talking about not having seen anyone from the old days and, you know, not this, this Elwood of the future has, has completely removed himself from anything that could identify him as the person that he says he is. And sure enough, on the last couple pages, you know, Colson delivers that actually it is Turner who has adapted his, his dead friend's name. Uh, what did you, I, I mean, <laughs> I want to ask a more specific question than this, but I don't have it. What did you make of that when you, when you read that moment? Yes, is what I said, because you're not going to break out of that place. If, he kind of showed his hand just a little bit when, you know, we're talking about the boxer and mm -hmm. there's a, there's an opportunity for for Colson to tell a different kind of slave narrative, right? 
And when you put that move into your novel, you're showing what kind of a slave narrative you're telling, right? Which is much more the real one and the real life one about how do you actually escape from this place? How do you escape from any place? How do you make sure that you don't go back? You do everything you can to change your identity. What's interesting about slave narratives is everybody knows you're black, dog. You can't change that. Everybody knows you're black. And in this, we also had the only black dude in the entire novel with something like bona fides, right? And it only makes sense that either one, he gets out, or two, somebody uses him to get out. Now, how he got used to get out, I thought that that was, that was really cool, right? The, mm -hmm. I'm just going to make your identity mine, which, okay, cool, I get that. But on the other hand, I was going, that's the only way that this works. The only way that this works is very quietly, extremely quietly. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I didn't have a problem with the way that that ended except to say, yeah, that, that's, that's the only way this can end. Because you're also made to understand those kids aren't really getting out of anywhere, right? Because they'll, they'll go be somebody else's uh, ward and everybody expects them to end right back up where they are. Either one, because they're actually, you know, breaking a law, or two, because, you know, what happened to Elwood happens to everybody. You know, that's that's what I thought. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that that's part of the, the mastery of this book. Um, you know, when he spoke about this, he said that he, obviously, he had this kind of plotted and charted from the beginning, because he had to, because you can't. You can't accidentally write your way into this. He had to construct that from the, the very moment that he introduced us to Elwood. Elwood cannot get out. Um, and no, nobody can get out unless they are unless they are somehow able to quietly slip into somebody else. Uh, I just think that it, to me, it was, again, one of those, we've talked about this in this podcast before, those inevitable but still surprising like it had it had to go here and yet you hope the whole way through that it won't i mean even up until the very last page i found myself hoping that i was wrong or that he had actually misled me in a different way um because it is so inevitable because as you said you know so many times it's this is not a book of the past this is a book of the present uh if you if you have your eyes open in today's world you you have to understand that this is a book of the present and that this is exactly how the world is structured and how it works and that this is the only way. Um, and yet still the whole way through, I found myself, you know, hesitating and, and stumbling and just kind of like, well, maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's not going to turn this way. Even though he tips his hand, as you said, with Griff in the fight scene. Yeah. I just thought it was, it's, it's a masterful piece of writing. It's a masterful move to make as a writer and as a novelist. And it is, it is again, one of those things that I cannot, I cannot let go. Um, or rather I should say it will not let go of me. I, I continuously find myself thinking about that moment when we find out who it actually is and how, yes, I saw it coming. No, I didn't see it coming. I did see it coming, but I didn't want to see it coming. Or maybe I didn't, didn't see it coming, but I want, you know, it's like, I, I can play it so many ways with my own interpretation of this novel. And at the end of it, at the core of it, it's just that this is, this is another inevitable novel that has been set in motion by the country that we, built upon slavery you know 300 years ago this is we are we have in a similar way this novel arrives at its inevitable end we have arrived at an inevitability in our 
our country based on what we, we constructed from the beginning. Um, so I see that as kind of almost a parallel to, to the state of the world today. You know, it's like this, this novel constructs in microcosm what we are all experiencing in 2020 after the things that have been set in motion for years, decades, centuries, et cetera. And that's been my read on, on most things, which is to say most people aren't going to surprise you. I mean, you can, you can root for it, uh, but they're not gonna. And that is also inherent in Colson's work, right? Mm-hmm. Bet on white people to let you down. Okay. And, and bet on the only black, good black stories, you know, being a one of something like submission, right? And two, <laughs> having a, a nefarious underbelly. And for once, it's it's almost like rooting for the Jewish guy that turned himself Nazi to get out and then did whatever he had to do to become famous Jewish guy, right? Whatever story that is. And that's this this identity crisis that needs to go on, that does go on among these men and goes on, you know, within black communities every day is also at issue, right? I mean... There's everywhere I look, there's only so much to be said about can you be can you be authentically black? Can you be who you are? No, not without calling attention to things like this. And every time you do, somebody tells you that I don't want to hear that. Well, it is right. It's like, well, we we've moved past that. Have we? I don't I don't think that we have. You know, the well, they signed the civil rights legislation. Well, they signed the Voting Rights Act the year after, and then they gutted it in 2013. I mean, shit's the same, man. Like, and if you are comfortable moving forward with the idea that white folks are going to let you down, it feels like you're setting yourself up better for how to navigate the world, quite honestly. You know, like that's that's how I feel. And every time that I have done that, I've, I've, I've been okay. You know, when, when folks like you enter my life, usually it's, Hey, there's this, here's this ring of fire, jump through this one and the next one and the next one and the next one. Okay. Now we might be able to talk, but most people don't get past the first ring of fire and I'm right to leave it there because they will show you who they are. Right. And I, and I found that to be true throughout this novel and I'm rooting for Turner, but I'm rooting for Turner, but because he doesn't have a choice. Right. And he should have had every choice. Every single choice should have been given to that kid because there's, he's the smartest person in the entire novel. Right. And yet Mm -hmm. we're all, Elwood is who white folks want black people to be. Turner is who they are. That's how I read that. And I thought that the pairing of them was interesting. Right. Because Elwood's going, no, I'm, I'm going to college. Like that's what's going to happen. And then Turner's like, Negro, you is not going to know what it, I can't help this man. I can't help this man because he won't see. And what did that lead to? His demise. What did it lead Turner to? Creating his own business in America. You know, like that's, that's the conceit there. That's what you're going to have to be. You're going to have to become the worst and most cunning and most cynical version of yourself to succeed. And I hate that. 
I don't disagree. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with any, any part of that. I think that that's a, I think it's a really accurate interpretation of both the, the messaging of this book and the, the state of affairs as we sit here in coronavirus 2020, um, you know, <laughs> which, which has only kind of, I feel like thrown into focus a lot of things that previously we as a society were pretending like we weren't going to reckon with or pretending that we already had reckoned with. Cause you said we did it four years ago and then we did it two years before that. And then we, you know, and we also did it in the sixties, like on, et cetera, on, 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 on. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think that that is a, I think you're, I think you're accurate. I think it's a really valid, accurate interpretation of a takeaway from this book. That is Katie Mullins. Follow her on the Twitters at Katie R. Mullins. Uh, outstanding writer who keeps getting published. Like, I, I feel like this happened in August, or is it? Is there a publication that I missed? Uh, no, you, I don't think you missed one. The most recent one I came out end of July, okay. early August, somewhere okay. in there. Okay, all right. Uh, and can, can we talk about grad school? Can we do that? Yeah, we can talk about it. Okay. Uh, so please tell everybody where you're going to grad school, what you're studying. So I'm at American University. I'm studying uh, education policy and leadership, going for a master's. Just just living out there on the Black Lives Matter Plaza and stuff. I mean, come on. like Pretty it, close. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Katie, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's it's really good to 